0: through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those
1: who practice them. Romans Chapter 1 Romans Introduction Romans is the longest and most systematically reasoned of Paul's letters. Paul announces its theme in 1 verses 16 to 17 the gospel is God's power for salvation, because it shows us that the righteousness of God is through faith for all who believe. Paul explains the need for justification through faith because of sin, 1 verses 16 to 4 verse 25. He then spells out the results of justification by faith in terms of both present experience and future hope, 5 verse 1 to 8 verse 39. In the next three chapters, he expresses his sorrow that many of his fellow Israelites have not embraced the gospel, and he wrestles with the theological implications of this, chapters. 9-11 He concludes by describing how the gospel should affect one's everyday life, chapters. 12-16 Paul wrote his letter to Rome in about AD 57. The Epistle to the Romans Introduction The Cathedral of the Christian Faith Frederick Godet 1. Unique Place in the Canon Romans has always stood at the head of Paul's letters, and rightly so. Since Acts ends with Paul's arrival in Rome, it is logical to have the Epistle section of the NT begin with the Apostle's letter to the Roman Church, written before he visited the Christians there. More decisively, Romans is the most important book theologically in the whole NT being as close to a systematic presentation of Christian theology as will be found in God's Word. Historically, Romans is the most influential of Bible books. Augustine was converted through reading Romans 13 verse 13 and 14, A.D. 380. The Protestant Reformation was launched when Martin Luther finally understood the meaning of God's righteousness and that the just shall live by faith, 1517. John Wesley received assurance of salvation through hearing the preface to Luther's commentary on Romans read in a Moravian house church on Aldersgate Street in London, 1738. John Calvin wrote, When anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole scripture. 2. Authorship Heretics and even radical negative critics for once accept a universal orthodox position that the author of Romans was the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, the heretic Marcion is the first known writer to specifically name Paul as author. The book is quoted by such Orthodox Christians as Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Justin Martyr, Polycarp, Hippolytus, and Irenaus. The Muratorian canon also lists the letter as Pauline. The internal evidence for Pauline authorship is very strong as well. The theology, vocabulary, and spirit are all distinctively Paul's. Of course, the fact that the letter says it is from Paul, 1 verse 1, is not enough to convince skeptics, but this is further borne out by other references, such as 15 verses 15 to 20. What is most convincing, perhaps, is the large number of casual coincidences with the book of Acts that have no appearance of being contrived. For example, references to the collection for the saints, to Gaius, Erastus, and a long-planned trip to Rome, all point to Paul as the author. Tertius was his amanuensis. 16 verse 22. 3. Date. Romans was written after 1 and 2 Corinthians because the collection being formed when those letters were written is now ready and about to be taken to the poor saints at Jerusalem. References to Sencria, the port city for Corinth, 16 verse 1, and other details make most scholars opt for Corinth as the city of origin. Since Paul was there only three months, at the close of his third missionary journey, before he was chased away due to plots against him, it must be during this short period that the epistle was penned. This makes the date about AD 56. 4. Background and Themes How did Christianity first reach Rome? We cannot be positive, but it may be that Jews from Rome who were converted in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost carried back the good news. That was in AD 30. Paul had never been in Rome when he wrote this letter from Corinth about 26 years later. But he knew quite a few of the Christians there, as is seen in chapter 16. Christians in those days were people on the move, whether as a result of persecution or as heralds of the Gospel or in the ordinary course of their work. These Christians in Rome were from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. Paul finally did reach Rome around A.D. 60, but not in the way he expected. He came as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Romans is a classic. To the unsaved it offers a clear exposition of their sinful, lost condition and God's righteous plan for saving them. New believers learn of their identification with Christ and of victory through the power of the Holy Spirit. Mature believers find never-ending delight in its wide spectrum of Christian truth, doctrinal, prophetical, and practical. An excellent way to understand the Epistle to the Romans is as a dialogue between Paul and some unnamed objector. As Paul sets forth the Gospel, he seems to hear this objector raising all kinds of arguments against it. The Apostle replies to his opponent's questions one by one. By the time he is finished, Paul has answered every major attitude that man can take regarding the gospel of the grace of God. Sometimes, the objections are clearly stated, sometimes they are only implied. But whether stated or implied, they all revolve around the gospel, the good news of salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from the works of the law. We will think of Romans as dealing with 11 main questions. 1. What is the subject of the letter? 1 verses 1, 9, 15, 16, 2, What is the Gospel? 1 verses 1 to 17, 3, Why do men need the Gospel? 1 verses 18 to 3, 20, 4, According to the Gospel, How can ungodly sinners be justified by a holy God? 3 verses 21 to 31, 5, Does the Gospel agree with the OT Scripture? For verses 1 to 25, 6, What are the benefits of justification in the believer's life? 5 verses 1 to 21, 7. Does the teaching of salvation by grace through faith permit or even encourage sinful living? 6 verses 1 to 23, 8. What is the relationship of the Christian to the law? 7 verses 1 to 25, 9. How is the Christian enabled to live a holy life? 8 verses 1 to 39, 10. Does the gospel, by promising salvation to both Jews and Gentiles, mean that God has broken his promises to his earthly people, the Jews? 9 verse 1 to 11 verses 36. 11. How should those who have been justified by grace respond in their everyday lives? 12 verse 1 to 16 verse 27. An acquaintance with these 11 questions and their answers will give a working knowledge of this important epistle. The answer to the first question, what is the subject of Romans, is of course the gospel. Paul wastes no time in getting to the point for times in the first 16 verses he mentions it, verses 1, 9, 15, 16. This gives rise to the second question, what is the gospel? The word itself means good news. But in verses 1 to 17, the Apostle tells us six important facts about the Good News 1. Its source is God. Verse 1. 2. It was promised by the prophetic OT scriptures. Verse 2. 3. It is the good news concerning God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. 4. It is God's power for salvation. Verse 16. 5. It is for all men, Gentiles as well as Jews. Verse 16. 6. It is by faith alone. Verse 17. With that as an introduction, let us take a more detailed look at these verses. Commentary I. Doctrinal, The Gospel of God, chapters 1 to 8. Up. Introduction to the Gospel, 1 verses 1 to 15. 1 verse 1 Paul introduces himself as one who was purchased, implied in the designation a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called, on the road to Damascus he was called to be an apostle, a special emissary of the Savior, and separated, set apart to take the Gospel to the Gentiles, see Acts 9 verse 15. 13 verse 2. We too have been purchased by the precious blood of Christ, called to be witnesses to his saving power, and set apart to tell the good news wherever we go. 1 verse 2, lest any of Paul's Jewish readers think the gospel is completely new and unrelated to their spiritual heritage, he mentions that the O.T. prophets had promised it, both in clear-cut statements, Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, Isaiah 7 verse 14, Habakkuk 2 verse 4, and in types and symbols, example, Noah's Ark, the serpent of brass, and the sacrificial system. 1 verse 3, The gospel is the good news concerning God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who is a descendant of David according to the flesh, that is, as far as his humanity is concerned. The expression according to the flesh implies that our Lord is more than a man. The words mean as to his humanity. If Christ were only a man, it would be unnecessary to single out this feature of his being, since there would be no other. But he is more than a man, as the next verse shows. 1 verse 4 The Lord Jesus is marked out as the Son of God with power. The Holy Spirit, here called the Spirit of Holiness, marked Jesus out at his baptism and throughout his miracle-working ministry. The Savior's mighty miracles, performed in the power of the Holy Spirit, one bore witness to the fact that he is the Son of God. When we read that he is declared to be the Son of God with power, by the resurrection from the dead, we naturally think of his own resurrection. But a literal reading here is, by resurrection of dead persons, so the apostle may also be thinking of Christ's raising of Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, and Lazarus. However, there is little question that it is the Lord's own resurrection that is primarily in view. When we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we mean that he is a son like no one else is. God has many sons. All believers are his sons, Galatians 4 verses 5 to 7. Even angels are spoken of as sons, Job 1 verse 6, 2 verse 1. But Jesus is God's Son in a unique sense. When our Lord spoke of God as his Father, the Jews rightly understood him to be claiming equality with God, John 5 verse 18. 1 verse 5, It was through Jesus Christ our Lord that Paul received grace, the undeserved favor that saved him, and apostleship. When Paul says we have received grace and apostleship, he is almost certainly using the editorial we, referring to himself alone. His linking of apostleship with the nations or Gentiles points to him and not to the other apostles. Paul was commissioned to call men of all nations to obedience of faith, that is, to obey the message of the gospel by repenting and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts twenty verse twenty one. The goal of this worldwide proclamation of the message was for his name to please and to bring glory to him. 1 verse 6, among those who had responded to the gospel were those Paul dignified with the title the called of Jesus Christ, emphasizing that it was God who took the initiative in their salvation. 1 verse 7, the letter is addressed to all believers in Rome, and not, as in other epistles, to a single church. The final chapter of the letter indicates that there were several gatherings of believers in the city, and this salutation embraces them all. Beloved of God, called to be saints. These two lovely names are true of all who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. These favored ones are objects of divine love in a special way, and are also called to be set apart to God from the world, for that is the meaning of saints. Paul's characteristic greeting combines grace and peace. Grace, charis, is a Greek emphasis, and peace, shalom, is the traditional Jewish greeting. The combination is especially appropriate because Paul's message tells how believing Jews and Gentiles are now one new man in Christ. The grace mentioned here is not the grace that saves, Paul's readers were already saved, but the grace that equips and empowers for Christian life and service. Peace is not so much peace with God, the saints already had that because they were justified by faith, but rather the peace of God reigning in their hearts while they were in the midst of a turbulent society. Grace and peace came from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Strongly implying the equality of the Son with the Father. If Jesus were only a man, it would be absurd to list him as equal with the Father in bestowing grace and peace. It would be like saying, grace and peace from God the Father and from Abraham Lincoln. 1 verse 8 Whenever possible, the Apostle began his letters by expressing appreciation for whatever was commendable in his readers. A good example for all of us. Here he thanks God through Jesus Christ, the mediator, that the faith of the Roman Christians was proclaimed throughout the whole world. Their testimony as Christians was talked about throughout the Roman Empire, which then constituted the whole world from the perspective of those living in the Mediterranean area. 1 verse 9, Because the Roman Christians let their light shine before men, Paul was constrained to pray for them without ceasing. He calls God as his witness to the constancy of his prayers, because no one else could know this. But God knows the God whom the apostle served with his spirit in the gospel of his Son. Paul's service was with his spirit. It was not that of a religious drudge, going through endless rituals and reciting prayers and liturgies by rote. It was service bathed in fervent, believing prayers. It was willing, devoted, tireless service, fired by a spirit that loved the Lord Jesus supremely. It was a flaming passion to make known the good news about God's Son. 1 verse 10, coupled with Paul's thanksgiving to God for the Roman saints, was his prayer that he might visit them in the not too distant future. As with everything else, he wanted his journey to be according to the will of God. 1 verse 11, the apostle's impelling desire was to help the saints spiritually so that they might be further established in the faith. There is no thought here of his conferring some second blessing on them, nor did he intend to impart some spiritual gift by the laying on of his hands though he did this for Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 verse 6. It was a matter of helping their spiritual growth through the ministry of the Word. 1 verse 12, he goes on to explain that there would be mutual blessing. He would be encouraged by their faith, and they by his. In all edifying society, there is spiritual enrichment. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Proverbs 27 verse 17. Note Paul's humility and graciousness, he was not above being helped by other saints. 1 verse 13, he had often planned to visit Rome but had been hindered, perhaps by pressing needs in other areas, perhaps by the direct restraint of the Holy Spirit, perhaps by the opposition of Satan. He desired to have some fruit among the Gentiles in Rome as he had among the other Gentiles. Here he is speaking of fruit in the Gospel, as the next two verses show. In verses 11 and 12 his aim was to see the Roman Christians built up in their faith. Here he desires to see souls won for Christ in the capital of the Roman Empire. 1 verse 14, anyone who is Christ has the answer to the world's deepest need. He has the cure to the disease of sin, the way to escape the eternal horrors of hell, and the guarantee of everlasting happiness with God. This puts him under solemn obligation to share the good news with people of all cultures, barbarians, and people of all degrees of learning, wise and unwise. Paul felt the obligation keenly. He said, I am a debtor. 1 verse 15, to discharge the debt, he was ready to preach the gospel to those in Rome with all the power God gave him. It was surely not to the believers in Rome, as this verse might seem to suggest, for they had already responded to the glad tidings but he was ready to preach to the unconverted Gentiles in the metropolis. Via of the Gospel Defined, 1 verses 16, 17. 1 verse 16, Paul was not ashamed to take God's good news to sophisticated Rome, even though the message had proved to be a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, for he knew that it is the power of God to salvation, that is, it tells how God by his power saves everyone who believes on his Son. This power is extended equally to Jews and Greeks. The order for the Jew first and also for the Greek was fulfilled historically during the Acts period. While we have an enduring obligation to God's ancient people, the Jews, we are not required to evangelize them before going to the Gentiles. Today God deals with Jews and Gentiles on the same basis, and the message and timing are the same to all. 1 verse 17, since the word righteousness occurs here for the first time in the letter, we will pause to consider its meaning. The word is used in several different ways in the NT, but we shall consider only three uses. First, it is used to describe that characteristic of God by which He always does what is right, just, proper, and consistent with all His other attributes. When we say that God is righteous, we mean that there is no wrong, dishonesty, or unfairness in Him. Secondly, the righteousness of God can refer to His method of justifying ungodly sinners. He can do this and still be righteous, because Jesus, as the sinless substitute, has satisfied all the claims of divine justice. Finally, the righteousness of God refers to the perfect standing which God provides for those who believe on his Son 2 corinthians five verse twenty one Those who are not in themselves righteous are treated as if they were righteous because God sees them in all the perfection of Christ. Righteousness is imputed to their account, which is the meaning in verse seventeen? While it could be any of the three, the righteousness of God seems to refer especially to His way of justifying sinners by faith. The righteousness of God is revealed in the Gospel. First the Gospel tells us that God's righteousness demands that sins be punished, and the penalty is eternal death. But then we hear that God's love provided what His righteousness demanded. He sent His Son to die as a substitute for sinners, paying the penalty in full. Now, because his righteous claims have been fully satisfied, God can righteously save all those who avail themselves of the work of Christ. God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. The expression from faith to faith may mean, 1. from God's faithfulness to our faith, 2. from one degree of faith to another, or 3. by faith from start to finish. The last is the probable meaning. God's righteousness is not imputed on the basis of works or made available to those who seek to earn or deserve it it is revealed on the principle of faith alone this is in perfect agreement with the divine decree in habakkuk 2 verse 4 the just shall live by faith which may also be understood to mean that the justified by faith one shall live in the first 17 verses of romans paul has introduced his subject and stated briefly some of the principal points he now addresses the third main question why do men need the gospel the answer in brief is because they are lost without it but this raises four subsidiary questions: One, are the heathen who have never heard the gospel lost? One verses eighteen to thirty-two. Two, are the self-righteous moralists, whether Jews or Gentiles, lost? Two verses one to sixteen. Three, are God's ancient earthly people, the Jews, lost? Two verse seventeen to three verse eight. Four, are all men lost? Three verses nine to twenty. See the universal need for the gospel, 1 verse 18 to 3 verse 20. 1 verse 18, here we have the answer to the question, why do men need the gospel? The answer is that they are lost without it, and that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the wickedness of men who suppress the truth in an unrighteous manner and by their unrighteous lives. But how is God's wrath revealed? One answer is given in the context. God gives men over to uncleanness, one verse twenty-four, to vile affections, one verse twenty-six, and to a reprobate mind, one twenty-eight. But it is also true that God occasionally breaks through into human history to show His extreme displeasure at man's sin. For example, the flood, Genesis seven; the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis nineteen; and the punishment of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, Numbers sixteen thirty-two. One verse nineteen are the heathen who have never heard the gospel lost? Paul shows that they are, not because of knowledge they don't have, but because of the light which they do have, yet refuse. Those things which may be known of God in creation have been revealed to them. God has not left them without a revelation of himself. 1 verse 20, Ever since the creation of the world, two invisible characteristics of God have been on display for all to see, his eternal power and his divinity or Godhead. The word Paul uses here means divinity or godhood. It suggests the character of God rather than his essential being, his glorious attributes rather than his inherent deity. His deity is assumed. The argument here is clear, creation demands a creator. Design demands a designer. By looking up at the sun, moon, and stars, anyone can know there is a God. The answer to the question, what about the heathen, is this, they are without excuse. God has revealed himself to them in creation. But they have not responded to this revelation. So people are not condemned for rejecting a Savior they have never heard of, but for being unfaithful to what they could know about God. 1 verse 21 Although they knew God by his works, they did not glorify him for who he is or thank him for all he has done. Rather, they gave themselves over to feudal philosophies and speculations about other gods, and as a result lost the capacity to see and think clearly. Like rejected is light like denied. Those who don't want to see lose the capacity to see. 1 verse 22, As men grew more conceited over their self-styled knowledge, they plunged deeper into ignorance and nonsense. These two things always characterize those who reject the knowledge of God, they become insufferably conceited and abysmally ignorant at the same time. 1 verse 23, Instead of evolving from lower forms, early man was of a high moral order. By refusing to acknowledge the true, infinite, incorruptible God, he devolved to the stupidity and depravity that go with idol worship. This whole passage gives the lie to evolution. Man is instinctively religious. He must have some object to worship. When he refused to worship the living God, he made his own gods of wood and stone representing man, birds, animals, and creeping things, or reptiles. Notice the downward progression, man, birds, animals, creeping things. And remember that man becomes like what he worships. As his concept of deity degenerates, his morals degenerate also. If his god is a reptile, then he feels free to live as he pleases. Remember too that a worshipper generally considers himself inferior to the object of worship. Created in the image and after the likeness of god, man here takes a place lower than that of serpents. When man worships idols, he worships demons. Paul states clearly that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice to idols they sacrifice to demons and not to God, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 20. 1 verse 24, three times it is said that God gave man up. He gave them up to uncleanness, 1 verse 24, to vile passions, 1 verse 26, and to a reprobate mind, 1 verse 28. In other words, God's wrath was directed against man's entire personality. In response to the evil lusts of their hearts, God abandoned them to heterosexual uncleanness, adultery, fornication, lewdness, prostitution, harlotry, etc. Life became for them a round of sex orgies in which to dishonor their bodies among themselves. 1 verse 25 This abandonment by God was because they first abandoned the truth about Him for the lie of idolatry. An idol is a lie, a false representation of God. An idolater worships the image of a creature, and thus insults and dishonors the Creator, who is eternally worthy of honor and glory, not of insult. 1 verse 26 For this same reason, God gave people up to erotic activity with members of their own sex. Women became lesbians, practicing unnatural sex and knowing no shame. 1 verse 27 Men became sodomites, in total perversion of their natural functions. Turning away from the marriage relationship ordained by God, they burned with lust for other men and practiced homosexuality. But their sin took its toll in their bodies and souls. Disease, guilt, and personality deformities struck at them like the sting of a scorpion. This disproves the notion that anyone can commit this sin and get away with it. Homosexuality is being passed off today by some as a sickness and by others as a legitimate alternative lifestyle. Christians must be careful not to accept the world's moral judgments, but to be guided by God's word. In the OT, this sin was punishable by death, Leviticus 18 2013, 20, and here in the NT those who practice it are said to be worthy of death, Romans 1 verse 32. The Bible speaks of homosexuality as a very serious sin, as evidenced by God's obliteration of Sodom and Gomorrah, where militant gays ran riot, Genesis 19 4 to 25. The Gospel offers pardon and forgiveness to homosexuals, as it does to all sinners who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians who have fallen into this heinous sin can find forgiveness and restoration through confessing and forsaking the sin. There is complete deliverance from homosexuality to all who are willing to obey God's Word. Ongoing counseling assistance is very important in most cases. It is true that some people seem to have a natural tendency toward homosexuality. This should not be surprising, since fallen human nature is capable of just about any form of iniquity and perversion. The gross sin does not consist in the inclination toward it but in yielding to and practicing it. The Holy Spirit gives the power to resist the temptation and to have lasting victory, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. Some of the Christians in Corinth were living proofs that homosexuals need not be irrevocably bound to that lifestyle, 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 1 Verse 28 Because of men's refusal to retain God in their knowledge, either as creator, sustainer, or deliverer, God gave them over to a debased mind to commit a catalogue of other forms of wickedness. This verse gives deep insight into why evolution has such enormous appeal for natural men. The reason lies not in their intellects but in their wills. They do not want to retain God in their knowledge. It is not that the evidence for evolution is so overwhelming that they are compelled to accept it. Rather, it is because they want some explanation for origins that will eliminate God completely. They know that if there is a God, then they are morally responsible to him. 1 verse 29, here, then, is the dark list of additional sins which characterize man in his alienation from God. Notice that he is full of them, not just an occasional dabbler in them. He is trained in sins which are not fitting for a human being, unrighteousness, injustice, sexual immorality too, fornication, adultery, and other forms of illicit sex, wickedness, active evil, covetousness, greed, the incessant desire for more, maliciousness, the desire for harm on others, venomous hatred, full of envy, jealousy of others, full of murder, premeditated and unlawful killing of another, either in anger or in the commission of some other crime, full of strife, wrangling, quarreling, contentiousness, full of deceit, trickery, treachery, intrigue, full of evil-mindedness, ill-will, spite, hostility, bitterness, whisperers, secret slanderers, gossips. 1 verse 30 Backbiters, open slanderers, those who badmouth others, haters of God, or hateful to God, violent, despiteful, insulting, proud, haughty, arrogant, boasters, braggarts, self-paraders, inventors of evil things, devisers of mischief and new forms of wickedness, disobedient to parents, rebellious to parental authority. 1 verse 31, Undiscerning, lacking moral and spiritual discernment, without conscience, untrustworthy, breaking promises, treaties, agreements, and contracts whenever it serves their purposes, unloving, acting in total disregard of natural ties and the obligations that go with them, unforgiving. 3, Irreconcilable or implacable, unmerciful, cruel, vindictive, without pity. 1 verse 32, those who abuse sex, 1 verse 24, who pervert sex, 1 verses 26, 27, and who practice the other sins listed, 1 verses 29 to 31, have an innate knowledge not only that these things are wrong but also that they themselves are deserving of death. They know this is God's verdict, however much they seek to rationalize or legalize these sins. But this does not deter them from indulging in these forms of ungodliness. In fact, they unite with others to promote them and feel a sense of camaraderie with their partners in sin. The Unreached Heathen What then, is God's answer to the question, are the heathen who have never heard the gospel lost? The condemnation of the heathen is that they did not live up to the light which God gave them in creation. Instead, they become idolaters and as a result abandon themselves to lives of depravity and vileness. But suppose an individual heathen does live up to the light God gives him. Suppose he burns his idols and seeks the true God. What then? There are two schools of thought among evangelical believers on this subject. Some believe that if a pagan lives up to the light of God in creation, God will send him the gospel light. Cornelius is cited as an example. He sought God. His prayers and alms came up as a memorial before God. Then God sent Peter to tell him how to be saved, Acts 11 verse 14. Others believe that if a man trusts the one true and living God as he is revealed in creation, but dies before he hears the gospel, God will save him on the basis of the work of Christ at Calvary. Though the man himself knew nothing about the work of Christ, God reckons the value of that work to his account when he trusts God on the basis of the light he has received. Those who hold this view point out that this is how God saved people before Calvary and how he still saves morons, imbeciles, and also children who die before they reach the age of accountability. Well, this ends another one of our
0: podcasts. And uh, until next time, just remember, God is out here and you can find out all about him in your Bible. All you have to do is pick it up and read it i have mine right here and uh god is in this bible so please read it with that said bye for now till next time